Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast series. My name is Scott Miller and I serve as your host and interviewer each week. You may recall that recently I published a book for HarperCollins based on the first three years of Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast. The book is called Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds, where I share a short, breezy, hopefully transformational insight from 30 of our guests with their permission. You can buy the book on Amazon or all your favorite book retailers. The book is a very fast read that allows you to maybe catch a different glimpse of an insight that was perhaps shared on the podcast or even off air, where sometimes the best nuggets are shared off camera. With their permission, we wrote this book. In fact, Master Mentors Volume 2 is now just becoming complete and will be available sometime later in 2022. Hope you pick up a copy of Volume 2 with 30 new insights from 30 new master mentors. Our guest today is the renowned psychiatrist, neuroscientist, author, speaker, coach, and author of this incomparable book, The Body Keeps the score. His name is Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, and he's joined us today from Boston to talk about all things trauma from his experience as a researcher, as a scientist, as a physician as well. Doctor, welcome to On Leadership. Good to be here. Thank you. Great to see you, sir. You have a lot going on. Your book is in enormous demand. It continues to top the bestseller charts, whether it be USA Today, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, it is, it is a life's work. It is a gift to read. It is actually challenging to read in terms, of, not in terms of the ease, but I have to put it down every couple of chapters and kind of absorb it because um, fortunately, I've not been um, intimate with mental illness or trauma in my life. I've had a fairly uh, trauma-free life, but identifying and understanding some of the stories that you share has made me definitely more empathic as a leader, as a husband, as a father. Looking forward to getting into some of the insights that you share in the book. Before we do that, doctor, could you perhaps take a few minutes and reorient our listeners and viewers to your journey? What has been your professional dedication and passion? And why did you come to write this new book, The Body Keeps the Score? Well, uh, I learned about trauma first from Vietnam veterans. And uh, that's actually how I started the book, how I met this Vietnam veteran a long time ago, about 40 years ago now, uh, who suffered from severe nightmares. And I knew something about nightmares, so I gave him some medications for his nightmare that usually work. And he came back two weeks later and said, uh, I did not take your medicines. And I said, why not? And he says, because I need to be a living memorial to my friends who died in Vietnam, and I need to think about them all the time to honor their memory. And that statement really blew me away. And I thought, yeah, I mean, sort of, you're a scientist by background. And I thought, this is very complex. This has to do with human loyalty. It has to do with getting stuck somehow in the past, uh, being able to be more emotionally involved with people are, who are gone or dead by now than people right now. And this is not such a simple little thing like, oh, they suffer from a serotonin deficit or they suffer from a problem with consolidated memories. This is really, uh, what I saw is that the whole being, both on the brain, body, and mind level, had been reorganized 
by those traumatic experiences. And after uh, studying and applying and learning many different treatment methods, I decided I would summarize what I've learned over 40 years from the many, many patients we have seen in uh, as clinicians, as patients, and also in our research studies. Doctor, thank you. I found the opening part of your book quite compelling, not identifying, but absorbing and listening and owning the stories of many of our war veterans and the damage, irreparable damage it's had on their marriages, their lives, their ability to stay alive, how they process the pain. Can you take a few? Of course, most stories are not about veterans. So there's a misunderstanding uh, as part of the culture we live in because we have this gigantic armed forces larger than the 40 next combined uh, countries in the world. We have a lot of soldiers and we have a lot of soldiers who go to war. And because we spend so much money on the military, uh, we focus on military people. In reality, of course, for every person who gets uh, traumatized by war, there's at least 30 children who get traumatized in their own families, in their own neighborhoods. And it's really a largely civilian issue of having to do with child abuse, actually. Doctor, I'm delighted that you actually clarified that because you share some uh, horrifying, eye-opening statistics about the trauma that happens right in our very homes, the place where children and families should feel safe from trauma. Would you perhaps even viscerally open our discussion today with the sobering statistics that talk about how frequently people are facing trauma? Yes, I'm happy to do that because uh, when we first defined PTSD for our little book, the DSM, uh, we said this is an extraordinary event outside of usual human experience. And boy, that tells us something about how blind we were that back in 1980, when this definition came online, we didn't have a clue about the extent of child abuse in this country. Uh, There's one out of four kids get beaten up by their own caregivers. At least one out of five women, and many men also, get sexually assaulted before age 18. About a third of all couples engage in physical violence at some point or another. We have two and a half people in jail who, after they go to jail, will have a very hard time uh, getting jobs and uh, really being truly rehabilitated. There's at least two and a half kids whose parents are in jail. There is hundreds of thousands of people who are in foster care because they got abused in their own families. This is a pervasive problem. Uh, uh, and it's sort of often that out of our sights. And we'd like to pretend like everything is hunky-dory and normal. And when you get to see how uh, pervasive it is, it's really very alarming. Uh, for example, last year I met with all the school principals of the county I now live in the Berkshires in in Massachusetts. And they said, oh, would you please start a clinic in our schools for uh, traumatized kids? And I said, well, how many of the kids in our better than average county here in Massachusetts, how many kids uh, have lived in families with drug addiction problems and violence? And they said about half. And I said, in that case, you cannot set up a clinic. In that case, you have to set up a school that can become a therapeutic and safe environment 
for these kids to learn. That means that you need to really change your whole curriculum and the way you approach children in schools in order to make them able to learn. Because when you have just seen somebody overdose on opioids or you have seen your parents attacking each other, you're not going to go to school and just sit there and absorb your math teachings. You know, uh, being exposed to violence, having been beaten up, having been molested, makes it almost impossible to learn. Uh, and so this is a very huge issue. I see it primarily as a public health issue that we lose gigantic numbers of our population uh, to disability, but to not being able to learn, not able to engage, not being able to uh, contribute to society because of the trauma they live with. Doctor, you've spent the majority of your adult career, your, your whole life professionally dedicated to understanding the science of the brain and trauma. You are a therapist and a psychiatrist. Why did you choose to name this book about all of your experiences around trauma the body keeps the score. Because it captures what happens. And that psychologists are very much into figuring things out and talking about things. Psychiatrists are very much into finding the right drug to treat some mental illness. It almost never works. Uh, uh, and what people don't really realize that once you get traumatized, your stress hormones pump out uh, substance in your body that register in heartbreaking and gut-wrenching sensations in your body. You feel unsafe, you feel on edge, you feel frightened, you feel disturbed, you feel uh, things aren't right. They're very much on a very elementary level, having to do with uh, what in neuroscience Antonio Damasio called the housekeeping of your body. When you're traumatized, uh, goes uh, uh, goes awry with your most elementary functions. Your breathing tends to become shallow, uh, or you get panicky uh, breathing. You are restless. You cannot eat, or you eat all the time. You cannot sleep, or sometimes you sleep all the time. And you cannot pay attention. You your body is not doesn't feel safe, uh, and keeps sort of reacting as if you are in danger, even though objectively there's nothing dangerous going on. In fact, doctor, you talk about how the trauma in our lives really impacts the way our nervous system responds to it and perhaps sometimes even perpetuates it and regulates it. Can you, uh, maybe an elementary re-education around- well, my, my book is also quite elementary, actually. So people can read it, it's a slog, but it's not easy. Uh, so what happens is uh, the issue with trauma is not so much that the horrible event, because that event actually is in fact over. Uh, so this is not about reconsolidation of memories. This is about that trauma changes your brain, changes your perceptions of the world, changes your interpretation of the world. Uh, so the trauma itself, the stuff that happened, is a story that happened a long time ago, but the imprint lives on in your body sensations, in your reactions, in your um, what you see and what you experience. So your whole world becomes a trauma-infested world. Doctor, as a leader in a corporation for decades, I've always recognized that people behave the way they do for a reason. 
If you were to speak to the leaders inside organizations that might be dealing with employees or colleagues or other associates, how do they determine, they're not clinicians, they're not psychiatrists, how do they determine if someone's, um, their behavior is a result of a trauma? How would you know and what could you do as a layperson to help someone identify that and perhaps get some help? Well, I don't expect that uh, leaders of industry will become diagnosticians who are right. able to of course. know what but, but we see. And because trauma is so pervasive, and we're really talking about uh, millions of people, what you see is that people have uh, excessive reactions to minor stimuli. So you may walk into the office and people go in a freeze response, or you ask them to do something and they stare and become panicky, or somebody does something and they start yelling at somebody. And so it's about your your body, uh, your uh, your system acting inappropriately to what for other people is just something that happens that is no big deal. Uh, and uh, if you reflect upon yourself and the people you know, uh, many people have those reactions. Is there a way for you to understand, for me to understand someone's behaviors might be the result of a traumatic event as opposed to perhaps some kind of mental illness or chemical imbalance? Is, is there a difference and does that matter? Well, you know, these things like mental imbalance, or is it, you know, these are all little metaphors. Huh? Yes. But what we now know, and people are finally waking up to this fact, is that if you get traumatized as a kid, your uh, likelihood you develop any number of things that are now classified in that very non-scientific Bible that psychiatrists have, the DSM, uh, that you're more likely to develop any of those disorders. So you're more likely to become depressed. You're more likely to become explosive. You're more likely to shut down. You're more likely to have insomnia. You're more likely to have uh, to suffer medically from any of the leading causes of of death actually in America. So, so your whole system gets rearranged to live in an ongoing world of threat. And so when you meet people who are defensive, who are uptight, who are reactive to the environment, you think, oh, this person is probably scared. And one thing that, for example, school teachers need to know is that kids who are obnoxious and difficult, they usually it comes from fear. But they feel terrified. And when they feel terrified, as kids, they don't quite know how to react to the environment. And that sometimes keeps going on into adulthood. People just have reactions that uh, don't fit, which makes them feel very ashamed of themselves because they know that they cannot control these reactions. And they tend to start avoiding people and hoping that people will not see them. And people go into hiding a good amount of time or the opposite can happen is that people just do it and say, it is your fault. Uh, uh, and they become bullies and they become unaware of other people's feelings. They become unaware of the impact they have on other people. Uh, and so they live in a somewhat different reality than the people around them. Doctor, you've written about, and I've heard that some people with trauma, typically young children, one of the ways that they deal with it is either through forgetting about it or not talking about it. And of course, that becomes even perhaps a bigger problem. What, why, why is a common human reaction to trauma to try to forget about it and either compartmentalize it and, and, 
and maybe speak to the many parents out there listening, if they've had a child or someone in their extended life that perhaps experienced some sort of trauma, how can we help them work through that beyond perhaps, in addition to perhaps, you know, therapy and in some cases, uh, medication? Well, uh, the whole nature of trauma is that it's too overwhelming to process it. Uh, so, uh, for example, if I'm medically trained and if I drive out of my house and I would see a, somebody wounded in a car accident, my training would help me to, to know what to do with that person. Uh, if I've not trained to take care of a person who has blood spreading all over the place, I may become going to a panic and say, oh my God, and it becomes overwhelming. And so so uh, trauma is about being exposed to something that leaves you completely helpless, that leaves you overwhelmed. And your mind cannot really encompass the totality of the misery. I just got out of an interview with uh, All Things Considered, and they really pushed me to label the pandemic as a trauma. I said, no, that is not a trauma. The pandemic is difficult and people have a very hard time and many people get traumatized in the context, but the pandemic per se is not uh, a trauma because most people are able to somehow cope with what's going on. Uh, it's not, you know, it's, it's a stress, it's tough, it's hardness, but for most people, it's not so overwhelming that it overwhelms us, that, that we don't know longer what to do. And so certainly as a kid, if um, your own parents beat you up, as a kid, your own reaction will be like, oh, I must be a very bad person that somebody is uh, beating me up. Or many vague victims will go like, oh, I must have done something terrible to cause this person to want to rape me. So there's a, there's a lot of self-blame. And you try to push those awful feelings away. And so trauma is very much about try to go on with your life. And I'm sure that you in your job tell you, uh, you to, and please, yeah, just go on. It's over now and we make you go on. And the problem with trauma is that your brain doesn't let you go on. And so you keep having that reaction and then you actually need to do a number of procedures uh, to actually restore a sense of safety in your body. You write about a heart-wrenching story of a young boy you named Noam and his response to the terrorist attacks in New York City and the uh, Twin Towers. Would you kind of recreate this story? We all are intimate with uh, the events, but would you create this young boy's reaction and what the learning is from that? Well, actually, that particular story is a non-heartbreaking story because this was a five-and-a-half-year-old boy who... Uh, witnessed the attack of the World Trade Center from about a block away from where it was happening. So he was right in front of it. But uh, because he had really lovely parents who made him feel safe and made him feel like, oh, my parents will take care of me, even though terrible things are going on, this kid does extraordinarily well. So it's one of the better stories in my book, actually. And uh, the story that they tell around him is that this five now five and a half year old boy makes a drawing of September 12th. So at nine o'clock in the morning, so exactly 24 hours after the attack. And in it, he draws the World Trade Center and people jumping in it. And at the bottom is a trampoline. And I asked this little kid, what's the trampoline doing there? He says, oh, they need a trampoline so that when they jump out, they will be okay. 
Huh? And I give that kid as an example of a kid who is not traumatized because this kid is able to think about alternative outcomes. Uh, and in order to go on with your life, you need to be able to think about a variety of options. And for example, I, I live in the Berkshires in Massachusetts, and we have had a lot of snow and cold in the last uh, two weeks or so. And you know, it's not always fun. And so when that happens, you get a little bit sort of uptight and depressed. But you know, I remember what the, what the warm sand underneath your feet feels like when you walk over a tropical island. And I go like, wow, here's the snow, and the alternative is the tropical island. And I call the airlines, and I make a reservation to go to Puerto Rico. And it's only because I can imagine a different reality than the snow that I'm living in, that I can take actions to make a difference. And if, you, if your imagination shuts down, you're really stuck where you are, and you cannot really organize yourself to do things differently because you cannot imagine how things, be, things will be different. And so, for example, if your father was a bully who beat you up regularly, you cannot imagine that somebody in authority will not put you down and humiliate you. And so they will act in, a, in, the, in the workplace as if they are scared and as if they are, expect you to beat them up, even though you may be a very warm and loving boss. So their reactions to almost anybody gets contaminated by early, their earlier experiences. I'm glad you clarified that uh, because my experience with this story was just imagining a five and a half year old boy drawing a picture, which you include in the book, of yeah. people jumping out of a you know, multi-story building. That in and of itself is just... reality is that this kid saw it. And for a lot of us, trauma is part of our lives. All of us see horrible things from time to time. And the question is not whether you see horrible things, but whether you can are able to say, boy, that was terrible, but it's over now. So our brain needs to have the capacity to actually go on and put things in time. And when you're traumatized, uh, let's say in the war, you keep reacting as if you're still in the war. Uh, if you have been molested, uh, you keep reacting to all kinds of situations as if you're being molested right now. Doctor, let's pivot for a moment. Um, you write in the book that the greatest source of our suffering are the lies that we tell ourselves. Expand on that. Well, that's what my teacher, Alvin Samuel, right. used to teach. Right. And very useful teaching. And that, uh, you know, we see it in a culture. Huh? Um, people deny that certain things happen. Like, oh, let's fight another war. It's patriotic. It's great. Let's rally on the flag. And people over and over forget how what happens when you actually go to war. And that half, I actually wrote an editorial uh, for the New York Times that you didn't take before the invasion of Iraq. And I send them a letter and say, you know, it looks like the country has decided to go to war, but you need to know that if you go to war, about half of the people who go, you send to war will come back and become unemployed. They'll, um, about half of them will become alcoholics or drug addicts. Uh, most of their marriages will break up and many eventually will not become contributing members of society. Think about it before you go to war. They didn't publish the article and what happened? Exactly what we know, 
because we track these things in science and we know what the consequences are of what happens to people who are uh, exposed to these terrible things. But, but nobody said, hey, let's not go to war because we'll really screw up millions of people at home. That was not part of the argument. Uh, so people try to forget and push these things away. Doctor, is there a difference between trauma and being traumatized or becoming a traumatic event that stays with you? Are those all synonymous terms? No, a, a trauma is a terrible event. To the degree to which it becomes traumatizing, in other words, where you develop the disorder, is the degree to which you get stuck. Uh, so uh, some people may have a child who dies of leukemia. And they grieve that child, and they go on, and they say, yes, it was very sad that one of our kids died of leukemia. Other people will never be able to let it go. They get stuck there, and they organize their lives around the memory of that dead child. And that's a, so that terrible event, horrible by any stretch of the imagination, for some people becomes the defining thing of their lives, and for other people it becomes, yeah, life is filled with hurt and suffering, and have, losing a child is just one of the very horrible things that's happened to me. But I'm still alive, and I'm here, and I still love my spouse. Great differentiation, uh, simple but profound. Doctor, you were also one of the pioneering researchers, psychiatrists, around the role that uh, pharmacology can play in trauma and mental health. It's a broad question, but you know our society now seems to have a pervasive use of, uh, of uh, pharmacological drugs. I think Utah, where I'm based, has one of the highest instances of, of um, drugs to help with uh, uh, depression and mental illness and such. Uh, what would you say about the state of mental health in the world, or perhaps here in America, and the role, the responsible role that medication can, can play in helping people move past trauma? Yeah, you know, uh, when we first started to, to have drugs that made a difference in mental illness, a lot of us were very excited that we might be able to make a real difference. And so when these drugs started to come out, I did the first studies on Prozac and trauma and the first study on Zoloft and trauma. Uh, we were all very optimistic. It turned out they were not very helpful. And sadly, psychiatry went rogue. And psychiatry stopped really paying attention to the individual experience of patients. And they started to have these lists of symptoms that they called diagnoses. If you're a real doctor, you know these are not really diagnoses. They're just lists of symptoms. Uh, and... Uh, and they start administering drugs that by and large do not work. So it's a very sad thing that drugs have become the answer. Uh, all the while, while saying to our kids, say no to drugs, we say be compliant with your doctor and take some drugs. And so what became very clear very quickly after I did this early drug studies and all my colleagues saw that I was a true blue good psychiatrist doing those drug studies, uh, that they don't work and that people actually have innate capacities to calm themselves down and to regulate themselves that may actually be much more powerful than the drugs that psychiatrists give. I'm not against drugs, but they don't solve the problem. Sure, I mean, this, this is not a, um, a simple statement or point of view. You've clarified it, you're not against the, the use of medication and, 
And uh, I'd love if you'd expand on, for the people who are listening and watching today, who perhaps themselves are suffering from some very real mental illness or trauma in their life, and they've tried everything possible in life, including, you know, decades of therapy or, or any number of other alternative types of therapy, and they found medication to be obviously helpful or life savings. Do you have like some advice for this group of people, many of which we have in our families and we work with these, these people that are suffering with trauma or mental illness. Do you have some general advice for people on how to get the right balance of help in their lives? Well, it's a, it's a very important question and that depends very much on your resources in that most things that are helpful for people may not be reimbursed by insurance companies because our culture is a pharma culture where if you're troubled, just take a drug. Uh, and most psychiatrists these days had no other tools in their toolbox. And so what very quickly I started to look at is what other things can we do to help people not get traumatized. And very quickly, I, we landed on, uh, on working with the body and helping the body to feel calm. I was very inspired when I went to China uh, back in 1992. Uh, China was a very rough place at the time, enormous amount of poverty and deprivation. And every morning I saw these Chinese, 10,000 Chinese in the park below my hotel doing Qigong. And I got like, what are these crazy people doing, doing Qigong? And I was pretty miserable myself, so I joined these people and do Qigong with them. I go like, oh, that's why people do Qigong. They feel so much calmer, they feel so much safer. And I was back in China just before the pandemic, and again, tens of thousands of people everywhere are doing these funny exercises that in America you would call alternative, but in other parts of the world go like, of course, that's what you do to help your body to feel calm. And so for me, alternative, at the end, for me right now, I still think it's psychiatric drugs is alternative because it's unnatural. But touching people and moving with people and uh, singing with people and playing volleyball with people uh, and picking up your kid and playing with them, that is normal. There's nothing alternative about it. So I don't think about yoga as an alternative treatment. I think about yoga as a terrific treatment to help you to activate uh, what we call in neuroscience, the interoceptive pathways of the brain, which are the pathways in the brain that are the pathways that help you feel calm and in control. Uh, so at the end, the treatment of trauma is to allow yourself to go deep inside and to feel what you feel and come to the the conclusion at some point on a very elementary, not a cognitive level of, yeah, that terrible stuff happened to me, but it's not happening right now. And to really get that sense of time and distance from those particular experiences. And those are best done through actually experiential techniques. Uh, also, what I've seen is there's a lot of this cognitive behavioral treatment where people say, oh, you shouldn't feel that way or that's irrational thinking. No, I've never seen that work. Uh, these, these, uh, these phenomena come much from deeper in our, in our brain, come from our survival brain. And we get these signals out of nowhere, out of part of our brain that we really have no control over that says, this guy is about to kill you. 
and you look at the guy and say, I don't think he's going to kill you. And the back of your brain, that animal survival brain, keeps urging you on, no, this guy is going to do terrible things to you. And so how do we get into these deep orientations of our mind and body towards threats and how we help them to calm down? Uh, and I've learned a lot, let's say, from Bishop Tutu, who died this past week. Uh, I was an advisor to the Truth Commission in South Africa, and South Africa was about to blow up. And Tutu was spectacular, the best trauma therapist I've ever seen. He would go to these traumatized townships where people were tortured and killed, and he would sing with them, and he would pray with them, he would dance with them. So people felt a sense of communality, a sense of pleasure, a sense of being seen and being held by Archbishop Tutu. And then he would ask people, tell me what happened to you. And they would listen very carefully to the story. And people would weep together with the person who would tell the story. And then at some point, Tutu would say, oh, man, this is so painful to hear this. Can we just take a break and sing a little bit? And then they would sing together. And the pleasure came back into their minds, in their bodies, and then people would go on. And so, yes, you need to go into the trauma, but you also need to know how to restore a sense of safety and pleasure. And that, of course, is extremely relevant to the workplace, is that in the workplace, there need to be uh, opportunities and moments where you can actually relax and feel safe. I think many of the Silicon Valley uh, corporations actually know about it. So they have gyms and they have walking trails and they have activities to go together with people's work so people can restore their inner sense of focus and attention. I'd like to take a moment and revisit something that you said, I think in the beginning, when we talked about the incident of um, child molestation and, and, and trauma in the home. I think you said one in four. Most of our listeners and viewers know I'm the father of three young boys, seven, nine, and 11. And it's something I'm quite attuned to to make sure that that never happens in their life. I think the incident perhaps might be higher in girls and boys. Maybe I'm wrong. Why is well, that, that happening? Uh, you know, if you have a seven, nine, and eleven-year-old kid, you know the old adage of insanity is hereditary. You get it from your kids. <laughs> that in fact, raising a bunch of rambunctious boys is pretty challenging, uh, and you need to really have your stuff together to deal with their hyperactivity and they're running all over the place and doing dangerous things. So uh, many parents have their own trauma histories and little things may make them freak out. And they start yelling at their kids because their fear system gets activated at the time that their fear system shouldn't get activated. And they should say, oh, how can I help my kid to be more organized? Instead of that, they start yelling at this kid out of their own sense of panic, fueled by their own background. And so I think exactly as a parent of three kids, you know how thin that edge is and how difficult it sometimes is to really keep your calm and your focus and your mindfulness, uh, even under ordinary conditions. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if sometimes you actually yell at your kids. You may, you may regret it afterwards, but you know, you get exposed to difficult things. If you have your own trauma history, your own reactivity, it becomes even much more challenging. Oh, let's be clear. I'm yelling at my boys, but I'm not molesting them. And I, what I'm getting serious about right now is I don't understand why are one in four children 
and families being subjected to some kind of rape or sexual molestation. What's happening? I think you know, the sad thing is that these figures are figures we just have dug up over the past few years. But the United Nations, for example, studies in every country about the world. And these are probably not new figures. These are probably an illustration that human beings are a pretty messed up species. And the figures for domestic violence are even higher in Africa and in some parts of Asia than they are in the US. In the US, they are gigantic. Huh? Uh, so um, we are a troubled species. And we carry a lot of burdens and legacies in ourselves that may express themselves from time to time. Uh- our time is ending here. The book is a masterpiece. Uh, I've not finished it, not because I was lazy, but because there's so much information in it. And as a parent and as a spouse and a friend and a leader and all of that, I want to make sure that I really understand its impact on me and my role with my boys and uh, with my spouse. What are you hoping is the big takeaway from society? Your book has swept the literary world by storm. Uh, yeah. People are reading it outside of psychiatry and mental health and therapy. People like me are reading it because it's captivating. W- w- what do you hope is the outcome of society perhaps reading your book? You know, uh, I have two two things on my front burner. Uh, little, little ambitions. One is that our, our educational systems get completely revamped and that in every school in our country from K to 12, uh, kids learn the four K, four R's: reading, writing, arithmetic, and self-regulation. And that kids, throughout their whole education, get taught about their bodies, about their reactions, about how they can manage their reactions, where they can discover how the way you breathe and the way you move and the way you interact with other people and the way you play. Uh, athletics and the way you make music with other people, how it changes you. And so I think education should be in part a journey of self-discovery where you understand your reactions. Uh, and I am just puzzled how in our educational systems, actually anywhere in the world, people don't learn about themselves. They only learn about things outside of themselves. Mm. So that would be a, a transformative experience because if you are trained early, I know that from many kids who I've hung out with growing up, if you do yoga with them and you do sports with them and you do meditation with your kids, they learn how to do it. And as adults, when things become tough, they can use these skills to calm themselves down, even though the circumstances around them may be very difficult, as they are for many Americans. And so that's my number one issue. My number two issue right now is the horrendous issue of incarceration in America. Uh, two and a half million people in jail, vastly more than any other country in the world. And once you go to jail, you are, your chances to ever get out and resume your life is virtually nil. And so we have this history, uh, follow up Jim Crow, of just locking people up and, and often also brutalizing people. And I think it's very important that we start paying attention not only to helping people who have gone to prison to reclaim their lives and to learn to uh, to really regulate themselves and to become members of society. So if you come out 
of jail and you're not allowed to vote and you're not allowed to have certain jobs and you cannot allowed to have certain schools and you have no resource to go to school, you basically condemn those people to either become hopeless or uh, homeless or to continue their criminal lives. You know, and so if you want to do something to make everybody in our society safer, set up a, a juvenile justice people system where people actually get helped, where people have a chance to resume their lives. And I hope that all of you as employers uh, consider hiring young kids who went wrong when they were 17, 18 years old and give them a chance to actually get a life for themselves. Dr. Vanderkolk, your book is seminal. The body keeps the score. Great advice on perhaps spending as much time studying other people and other issues as we do studying ourselves. And the power of self-regulation we know is not just valuable in young boys in the Miller House. It's valuable in our careers throughout all of society. It's a great piece of advice for all of our professional journeys. The body keeps the score. I highly recommend it. Brain, mind, and body in the healing of trauma. Doctor, thank you again for making your investment and time for our audience today. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. And thanks for joining us. We'll see you back here next week for a new guest on leadership.